0: Hello, great to see everyone. Uh, uh, For all our friends out there, Happy Holy. Um, Vatsal is out celebrating with family. Um, I know Monica a few minutes before tried to put colors on my face and I said, give me one hour. Uh, I, uh, I swear I'll, I'll, I'll let it happen. Um, but, uh, you know, great, great holiday and wishing everyone a, a good, safe time out there. Uh, I'm Tyler Brad. I am the uh, CEO of am um, Coming fresh off a in-person pitch last night, which was weird. And uh, it had a microphone and everything so I could hear my voice in real time. I, as soon as I started talking, my voice started to get all raspy. It was weird. Um, but uh, I'm back, uh, back in my comfort zone at the house and excited to spend some time with uh, you guys today.
1: Uh, this is Lauren. I'm the uh, accountant here. I'm having a great time working with these guys, kind of curious about what's going on with Holy. If you guys actually have a a description of what the holiday is all about, I'm assuming there's something to do with colors. Is the holiday of colors? Is that the gist of it? Or is there like a a background to that?
0: I don't know. You know, it's a great question. Uh, I have got a couple different uh, explanations from different uh, people, uh, depending on even their sect of religion uh, and, uh, you know, dedication to that religion. So, uh, Nihal, it looks like you're about to jump in. I, I don't know if you have more insight than I do.
2: Oh, I, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, hey, Nihal, a digital strategist here to speak. Uh, about to explain uh, what Holi is. <laughs> no, but- Holi, uh,
0: everything, history, starting, everything, yeah.
2: Everything. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, so I uh, kind of like how Diwali is like the festival of flights. Holi is like the festival of color. Um, and kind of just, you know, similar, I guess based on like Hindu uh, mythology uh, around like you know, good and evil, the victory of good over evil and just celebrating that moment. Um, honestly, I feel like it's just like at this point, yeah, there's a religious element to it, but it's also become, in India too, right? It's become such a huge commercial event as well, which is uh, pretty sweet. Uh, and, you know, people in India will take any chance to... to. Uh, uh, and works and party yeah a lot, so. a
0: lot of festivals a lot of celebrations in india that's what i've learned from uh, my time with Vatsal and monica is like every week it's like there's a party going on like what what's what what's going on so i i like people who find uh, excuses to celebrate uh reasons to celebrate and uh you know fully fully support it and i mean colors uh it seems like a, a very exciting uh one in particular so um We'll uh, jump in. We got a, a, you know, it looks to me like basically before every one of these, we just throw in a couple of topics in Slack, and this one looks condensed today, or, or dense, not condensed, but dense uh, of the things going on. So, um, out of these lists that you guys are looking at, anything that uh, sort of piques your interest that you want to make sure that we uh, we talk about?
1: Uh, I definitely say the uh, the pitches and uh, what you learned from that event, and. Maybe um like the difference between this uh this pitch and maybe the pitches you've done in the past, if you found any uh areas that you found that you've improved upon or areas that you'd like to improve upon, just uh um I don't know, just kind of keeping the, the forward momentum of your uh, your evolution through pitches, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's um you know, it's always I find uh, you know, there's people who are very talented, but you I did like that practice pitch and you're in your own comfortable environment. No one's watching. And you have, uh, you know, you record that, you're like, ah, that was, that was nice. If I could do that of that quality in the actual pitch in front of everyone, I would be pretty happy. And then once you actually get into it, you're looking at, you know, 40 people in the eyes, especially this circumstance where it was like the first time back in person after, you know, a long time away. And there's, you could tell there was one out of the conversations that I had of people felt um, some anxiety being back together networking trying to connect have normal conversations again and it was definitely you could sort of feel that energy um
2: and so for uh, sorry
0: did
1: you have to did you have to pitch with the mask on
0: no we didn't actually yeah so which was nice it's nice to be able to speak freely and you know actually do that um i would say my my default mode and this happens for a lot of people is once you get into the actual pitch environment um Mine is speed of voice goes up a bit, you know, so I started speaking a little bit more quickly. And uh, somehow I ended a, a minute and a half longer in my presentation in front of people than I did recording. Um, so good. I overall, Monica asked me how it went. I said like a 7.5, 7.6, which is actually pretty good. You know what I mean? If I, that's like me, if, if I'm looking at IMDB and I see a, a show rated 7.6, I I will watch it as long as the Google reviews cement credibility uh to it as well too. So I look at it as that things that you can improve. Um, but overall I think we're getting better at simplifying the product, you know, what we're doing, you know, really focusing on some of the customer uh up front and then just also just avoiding some of the maybe some of the more technical stuff. And I know, you know, Vatzel wanted to, me to show that diagram. I'm like, you know, I was like that diagram is not going to work in this presentation context, especially depending on the situation, the length that you have and who you're talking to right so you really do have to tailor your pitch on who's in the room what they're interested in you know are they focused on the technology are they focused on the business or is it in that case it was a mix of investors it was a mix of startups it was a mix of just interested people in business so you have to go a little bit more I would maybe general purpose mass audience and also just try to bring good energy into the pitch no one wants to see someone read off the slides and part of it is a little bit of a performance um too so learned a bit um, the thing I would say is, you know one thing I've you know very uh, quickly learned is like there I can see why people are interested in remote work. So I was saying right before this call to the Hall, it took me about an hour to get there, only about thirty five minutes to get back. You know, network you know we get there. So basically that was like five hour time investment uh, as a whole. And you know I asked myself, what can I do with five hours? Is there ways to make more? you know, bigger impact, positive things. And of course I was excited because of the in-person networking. But um, if you're gonna go dedicate your time to an event if gas prices are high, you gotta drive. Like there's things to consider of, is this worth the, the time and how do you qualify um, the time there. So, um, uh, I'm still working through that. That was just last night. That's pretty fresh in the mind and I'll reflect on it a little bit more. I forgot to record the pitch like I should have. Um, but, uh, it was in the right direction and, uh, some good, good reception and, uh, some people asking to connect and stuff after, but I also think, you know, maybe not fully qualified room of people there, or even say an investor specifically interested in property tech or real estate or climate tech, you know, you're not always going to align directly with everyone in the audience. So you have to consider that and just, do your best you can, um, show the passion, show the love and show the traction and, and, and growth there.
1: Absolutely. Good. Um, was there any sort of a struggle that you found because you're pitching by yourself as opposed to having uh vansal around? Was anybody giving you some like questions you weren't really able to answer or was there any questions um, at all? Really?
0: Not questions came after there was no, sometimes like in a lot of times in a pitch thing like that, they would actually set questions after and this time they didn't do it. Just, I think to streamline the event generally, um, you can sort of in a way predict the questions that are going to come, you know, the question is going to be like, Oh, you know, does it uh, Google or Amazon have APIs for this? Or uh, have you heard of Otter or, you know what I mean? Like they're very, like in a way you get used to predictive pitches because generally Unless you're talking to a very specific subset of investors who are, you know, very deep into conversational AI and voice tech and natural language processing, all that stuff. Like they don't have as deep of knowledge on the space that you do. So the questions are more general and things that, you know, most likely, at least for several years that we've thought of or come up against already in some case. Um, So nothing like that. You know, there's definitely questions that I've had in the past where I'm like, I'm going to have to defer this to Vatsel. Um, but, you know, truthfully, I don't mind pitching, you know, uh, myself just because, um, it's actually hard. It adds a a whole other dynamic when you're going back and forth and switching who's speaking and making that seem natural and timed. And like, obviously that's when I have a good relationship and there's no, there's not a real challenge with that. But, um, when you can get in the flow yourself and just go through and eliminate the variables of you know, maybe like vatsal stumbling or even myself stumbling and wrecking that dynamic, then yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, one thing I will quickly say is like, there are some events are coming back in uh, to uh, person. So one of the events that's coming up was Collision Conference in Toronto and uh, that's in June. And I was lucky enough to go um, in 2019. I don't know how I got a ticket, to be honest, um, but it was awesome. And that was one of the moments where I it really accelerated my desire to be in Toronto and join the DMZ because I went to that event and there was so much exciting stuff happening there. So many inspiring companies, so many companies showing off what they're doing. And like, I just felt so excited after that event and some of those conversations. So I hope I can go this year and, you know, it is nice to see that Obviously, these two years have been pretty difficult for a lot of people, but there is a drive for people to reunite back in person, and that I hope at least... You know, there's been a lot of good Toronto success stories in this time and that there is still sort of an entrepreneurship community here, a culture um, that will be, I hope, reignited in some way. And I'm hoping we can uh, get some tickets to Collision here. Uh, so uh, maybe we can all uh, see each other in person. It's a ton of fun. I got to see Timbaland and Akon. Those are like celebrities, but I actually got to saw cool um, tech people uh, too. So that's it. Uh I'll stop talking here. Uh, let's talk and let's get you guys in on this conversation and uh let me know if there's any anything else you're thinking around that.
1: Uh sure, you Neil, you want to talk about uh diversification of customers? Got a few questions here.
2: Yeah, I I think that would be a good. Uh, is is like the voice volume? Okay, like I just set up set Yeah, up. you're good. Fine, good. Yeah. Um yeah, so you know, we have this point about diversifying um a customer base and, uh, you know, the, the kind of pros and cons of, let's say, high-ticket clientele uh, or maybe having just a, a couple of high-ticket clientele that uh, support your revenue. And, you know, like a t- two kind of associated thoughts with that um, were when it comes to diversification, do we think it's possible to sell to both enterprise and individual customers at the same time, especially with our kind of limited team size and limited resources, Um, as well as, uh, you know, when it comes to diversification, uh, how, uh, actually my two points are kind of the same, but how do you package your products, right? uh, In more appetizing ways for specific segments or specific groups of people. So, you know, our, our product obviously does a lot of things, um, but it, it doesn't make sense for us to maybe start thinking more in line with, okay, here are specific customer segments that might only use X, you know, Y or Z and how do we, you know, not only better represent that through like the app journey, but also in our sales pitches or marketing, uh, efforts as well um, and trying to drive people into these different funnels since they aren't necessarily always the same type of customer. So those are kind of just three top level points. And just wondering your thoughts on that, you know, maybe challenges that uh, you've all experienced or seen during this time frame when it comes to, you know, uh, diversifying clientele or finding uh, larger customers that, uh, you know, that's always the dream for most, most companies. Uh, and yeah, we we'll, would we'll just love to hear what you both think, uh, along those lines.
1: I think when it comes to actually like diversifying too, you kind of have to, um, segregate clients as well, put them into like different, uh, subgroups. Um, I think like a lot of the ways that we're marketing ourselves right now is it's a very, uh, general language it's kind of reaching out to multiple different people. you are not really specifically going after one, uh, person or one uh, customer profile just because there's like so many wide applications of the uh, of the app Um, so it's uh, when you're kind of diversifying at that point you kind of have to um, decide how to diversify like and it's when you're talking about like between like enterprise and individual I think like um, you know it doesn't really matter like what they're going to be doing differently I think when it just comes to enterprise individual it's just a matter of how many people are on the team? Whether it's just one person or you know a massive team of conglomerate, um, but then it's like you have to kind of find out like why are they using it? Because we have like we have like researchers, we have marketers, we will have healthcare practitioners, and um, they all use like different features. So um, I'm not sure if there's any other ways we can diversify. Maybe it's more of like a matter of um, just wording the uh, the website and the marketing towards like different sectors there, or if there's like other sectors you want to open up to, but it's really just all a matter of wordplay. Like the product's really not going to be changing too much. You can kind of block features. You can kind of uh, provide more features, but it's kind of like the same thing uh, given to everybody, but it's just a matter of how you uh, draw the specific people in to begin with.
0: I think it's, you know, um, what sort of both of you are alluding to is, there are specific workflows that we're seeing different uh, industries or I would say job titles or use cases. So, you know, if I'm a researcher, I need to uh, capture recordings from uh, a voice recorder that I've embedded on my website, then I need to transcribe those and then I need to be able to share those results. So it's like, what type of, like, what pre-built preset workflows can we enable, or at least say like highlight on the site that. You know it's very clear that this product is configured specifically to their needs and then obviously the other stuff is in there it's part of the platform but you know that the path that they're forming is going kind of highlighted and easily accessible for them and you know i think we've talked a little bit about sort of unbundling these products together um i guess the challenge in that is the complexity of it right like uh you know, it would be hard for, for us, for example, to say, say just we use this embeddable recorder example, and we actually separated that into another product and removed it out of the normal speak and that was a, a product. Like you guys have seen a little bit about the complexity of the database management or Stripe management or uh, all that so as you actually say unbundle. It might make seem like it would actually make it simpler, but in a ways, there's a lot of uh, configuration changes that would need. It would be a big time investment to, to actually do that. So that definitely is something that um, I'm trying to 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 figure out. And I think you know the other part of um, like Nehal talk about diversification, which is you know an interesting word can mean many things in a way. But like um, I actually don't believe we should be diversifying into other industries or use cases, or not necessarily use cases, but industries. I think the industries that we're seeing where value is created is It's enough already. I don't think we need to go uh, any farther. And again, we get queries all the time, but we sort of disregard them um, in a way because um, they don't make sense or we haven't seen the pattern of value created or it's too much of a stretch for our system in its current uh, state um, for us to make that worthwhile. The part that I was, you know, Nihal was alluding to, and I think part of this conversation is about too is like the diversification of your actual customer base, where if, One of your customers drives 60, 70% of your revenue and something happens out of your control with that company, or they just, you know, churn, um, you know, they don't find the value that you were hoping that they would find your company is then is at risk. And it's something that I've seen, obviously there's like the financial cash flow risk of that, but there is also like from a value from an outside person valuing the business. One of the things that. I've been, you know, asked about is, you know, what is the breakdown percentage of revenue and where are those coming from? And if there is say, uh, you know, more than 50% coming from one customer, that's actually a risk for anyone buying. They don't know how strong that relationship is. Do they know if you actually say you transitioned out of the business, does that relationship remain intact and will they continue paying? And, you know, is that relationship strong enough um, to do it? And so I think that's one thing that, you know, continues need to be worked on. It's not necessarily diversification of industries or use cases, but diversification, like continued growth of our business of different companies so that no company is say driving more than 50% of our revenue. And so if there is say a, something that happens or a churning or whatever, the, the company continues to grow and writing. It's not just this big empty hole that needs to be filled and can create, you know, problems for um, an early stage business. So um
2: yeah, I mean, to to that point, like, I, I don't think my intent was around, like, use, diversifying use cases, because, you know, the use cases are what they are. Uh, I guess it was more around within specific use cases, there are obviously different types of customers, even within uh, the existing use cases. So, for example, if we... and and maybe this is a calculation we uh, haven't figured out, or maybe it's a calculation we're working towards, but it's like, okay, what what is the balance of, you know, if we have, you know, X number of enterprise or large scale contracts and X number of smaller, but still, you know, uh, revenue generating, growth contributing uh, contracts as well. It's almost interesting. Like, it's quite interesting to think about you know, where do those meet and how do they balance each other out uh, in terms of value too, right? So, for example, if an enterprise client is, I mean, usually not the case, but let's say they're at a higher risk of churning um, for whatever reason, what what does the balance have to be on the other side to kind of make up for that churn as well, right? And kind of vice versa. It's like if, you know, we, we lost 400 individual users for whatever reason, um, what would need to be balanced out on the flip side, right? Or like another kind of user group to make up for that, which, which I think is like an interesting, like financial question as well, just in terms of when we are getting clientele as well, thinking about, you know, okay, if this goes south, what is our kind of contingency or backup uh, in terms of other customers? Like, does that mean we start trying to upsell, uh, you know, some of our other larger customers, or do we, find a way to protect ourselves, uh, you know, based on future arrangements, like a better way to protect ourselves somehow. Um, So just some interesting thoughts on that front that, you know, I, I don't really have too much insight into, but I think from the financial perspective as well, would be pretty interesting to hear about how we maybe mitigate some of the risk obviously getting more users and getting more paying customers is one of them, but curious if there's any other kind of protective measures for, uh, you know, smaller businesses or, you know, uh, companies like us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You've really definitely got to be on the ball with uh, who you're doing business with. Like when you are a customer of someone, you are didn't you be like a stakeholder and if um, they are a big part of um, big part of your business as well, you kind of have to be a big part of their business too. You kind of have to be, uh, you know, developing a good, um, Report good conversation, not so just some from like a a sales perspective, but just kind of understanding like the going concern of the actual business there, like understanding, you know, what's the, uh, you know, what's, what's the mission, like how well they're doing, how much are they spending, how much they're making. Um, And it's not really just a matter of the business too, because you can have a great business, but it's also a matter of like the actual industry. Um, Like we can be on the top of the ball within our own industry of like software, of uh, transcription, of automation, of AI, but then we're doing so much business with all these different industries that are going to go through all of their fluxes: um, healthcare, with research, with marketing. Um, so you really have to like take a look um, into thinking about like the lifetime value of a customer too. And it's not just a matter of like adding up like oh they're going to be paying us you know for this many months uh, this amount. You're gonna have to like think about like what's the probability of them going, you know, farther from that expectation or lower. Like, are they? There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like calculations that are not really quantitative because you kind of have to think about like maybe something's going on in the business. You don't know. You can't really say. Maybe like the they're not working well together. Maybe they're coming into conflict. But um, uh, there's really no way of keeping track of that unless you're actually, you know, w- within embedded and within that culture of that uh, that business too. It's um, yeah. You really have to be uh, wary of companies that you're doing business with that don't really have much of a culture behind them, because you kind of have to think about like how, how um, how serious is like uh, everybody in that company going to be going to be taking the um, the work that they do, and uh, how long are they going to be able to stick through and go through rough times and um, yeah. So you really have to take like inventory of the relationships that. Not only you have with the companies, but also like what companies, the relationship they have within themselves as well.
2: It's interesting to think about, you know, and this is probably why getting some of these, you know, blue chip clientele is always like at the top of most businesses, like wish list, right? It's uh getting these companies that you know for a fact will be around for X number of years, right? For at least as long as your business is around. Um and you know, obviously, competition. That's not to, not to say that all, all our customers are blue Just to just to clarify that, but it's uh, you know, when it comes to actual like market cap <laughs> and uh, longevity in the in the marketplace. Um, and so, it, it's also almost thinking about in terms of uh, maybe even like the markets or like to your, to your point, like when you vet, like in a way where customers also vet us. I feel like when we take on these big contracts as well, I'm, I'm sure there is uh, a relatively significant like vetting process from our end as well to make sure that a we can deliver on all the commitments, but also something that we see being a sustainable uh, relationship. Uh, you know, as, as far as we can we can tell, really.
1: Yeah, as it's, far as you can know.
0: Well, and it's been, you know, in a trend I've I've seen, you know, over these these few years is a lot of the companies who are actually gravitate towards us, um, are, I would say early stage, um, product development, you know, like they are looking at how do they build transcription and natural language processing into their systems. Um, some of these are net new systems that they're building and like anything, there's risk in that entire process. And, um, you know, the, one of the questions that you sort of maybe think about too, Lauren, is just like, what is the priority of the work that you are doing with them? Because when, the, you know, poop hits the fan, uh, the, the, you know, what if things all of a sudden, you know, they any, um, you know, path that they're on starts to get rocky. They're going to start to cut off the things that are not high priority. And so in a case where maybe just as an example, again, like transcription natural language processing is this sort of edge or innovation that they're trying to bring in their business, that they're not sure the exact ROI, et cetera, et cetera, that's actually going to be maybe something that is chopped off first um, so that they can keep the core things that are driving their business or moving their business forward. So um, now compare that to, you know, and I think this is why so many businesses focus on specifically like say sales and marketing. It's like, without that, you don't have, you, you're not generating any more growth. And so those, um, activities in the business are highly prioritized and, and, and most important. And so they have a little bit more safety uh, in that circumstance. But also what we've seen in the past is like when things get rough, when I was in an agency environment, it was like, if I'm paying an agency, a bunch of money and i can't show exactly how much money they're making me or that every dollar i spend on them is giving me two dollars back five dollars back i got to cut them off because it's just too big of a risk right now and i went through that experience lauren you did too when COVID happened um we were working with that uh amazing great company that hearing aid company and they were a big chunk of our revenue at the time and it was just like we there's so much uncertainty we can't even operate our clinics right now we don't have anything to advertise even in that case, it was even worse than what I was describing before. We can't honor, we can't continue this relationship. And so that was a company that was already, you know, toward not maybe not quite there, but 40% of revenue at the time. And that led to, you know, downstream consequences for at the time, which was Speak AI. So that's one of the other things that that I think about. The other big one that sort of Neil touched on is like, so we use this example case, 5,000 bucks. Say you have 5,000 bucks recurring companies recurring revenue that that is removed. How do you replace that as quick as possible? So say for us average plan of a consumer sort of self-serve, I would say we're getting towards 100 bucks. We'll just say 100 bucks Canadian that means we need to get uh, you know 50 people um, to sign up um, to replace that income. Um, or if we say, or if we look at deal sizes that are a thousand bucks, we get five people. So that's a big change, you know. That's a very wide range in the amount of customers that you need, and then probably the tactics that are involved. But then, what also we see in this is the, um, the time it takes to make that sale. And uh, we've seen, even over the last two months, I would say our quickest adoption of someone finding out about those to sale that we've seen. And maybe those are only say, you know, 250 bucks, uh, and it's an annual contract on a personalized plan, but those are net new people that we had no relationship before literally finding us and signing up within seven days. So that's a really valuable activity. Whereas you start to increase the deal size, you're, you're going from, you're going to several weeks to months. And then even one of the people I talked last night, she just went through that ISO 2700 and SOC two, certification for the large, large deals and said it was a nightmare, like basically described it as a nightmare. Like they got through it. It's opened up and it's opened up amazing opportunities for them now, but it was not a fun journey. And that was six months to a year to get that ready. And then they could start selling to the companies. And even then you still are going to have to go through procurement certification, validation that all that's taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, not unfortunately, it's more like we have to look in, you know, again, if if this example is 5,000, we have to look in that range of, you know, 100 to maybe 1,000, 2,500 a month and see how we can execute those really quickly without, you know, massive runway of months um, to make that sale happen. So, also, you know, something that we're uh, sort of playing out there.
1: Do you think that uh, the work that we've been doing with uh, Google Ads and uh, Facebook Ads uh, recently is going to be uh, uh, helpful for that um, that cause? Then
0: I think we are. Um, we're. I mean, we're getting some good insights right now, but it's still pretty early on the conversion and then conversion to sign up and paid. Like, I don't know. You know, Nehal, maybe because I, I, we're still like the last two days have been our highest signups ever, uh, in a day. So there's something happening from an organic search perspective, I believe, or I don't actually know exactly what's happening there. I don't think it's coming from paid, but it's odd that as soon as we started to turn on paid that we did see, but we're not getting, I'm not seeing attribution from paid ads that's proving that
2: right. I mean, there is a running theory that, um, actually, you know, putting in some money around your desired keywords, uh, you know, just putting in money towards your site actually does lead to kind of boosted organic performance as well.
0: Has that ever Um, been proven, though? I've heard that for years and I've never. (laughs) That's
2: a running theory, right? Because no no one really knows uh, Google's algorithm. But um, it it could also partly be that, you know, we we have been struggling with um, some tracking. And it, it does seem to be correcting itself a little bit. But maybe there is still a gap in there somewhere where something or the other is not Because right now, the the only variable we do have is the fact that we started running ads, right? And that kind of led to this. I guess that would be almost like 40% jump, 30, yeah, exactly. 30% in daily user signups. Because um, it's been consistent for the past two days. We've hit 28, I think, 28 or 30, one of the two. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, theoretically, it's it's helping, uh, but we've only been running it for about a week now. I think there
0: is some a little bit of skew just because I think one of them um, was a team, so they added some team members, so that you know that obviously uh, actually Vatsal said that doesn't count. Uh, Interesting. So do we have more users than we actually say we have? Anyways, uh, I'll I'll get out. So Lauren, the answer is not yet, Uh, and I think, but I think we've actually done a pretty you know Nihal and I did quite a bit of work, and then Vatsal helped us with some you know, some analytics set up to measure the success of the advertising campaigns. And I think we did a pretty good, tight foundational setup here. The thing is, is is there enough search volume that's specific to terms that we're willing to advertise on? And truthfully, we're not in a position where we're like going to dump a bunch of money into terms that are not like a, a big company. Say you're, you know, a venture capital funded company, you get, you know, $10 million, like right now it's like 60% or something of uh, venture capital money is literally going to, to paid advertising. And that's probably decreasing a little bit and they're finding ways to diversify that. But they would, they would just sort of turn on a, a fire hose of people driving to landing pages on their site for, for searches that are related or semi-related and just try to get as much data and people as possible and then start churning through it. Whereas we've gone sort of the opposite which is go as tight as we possibly can and then even tighten it down even further. But with that, trying to reduce, you know, we're not trying to spend a a ton each day. We're not, you know, we're not sort of taking risks on searches that aren't likely to convert. Um, And there's again, pros and cons because we, by not exploring, by not bringing these explorative channels open, we might be missing out on opportunities where value is created, where someone actually does sign up um, that we weren't even aware of. But again, that's sort of, risk uh yeah. in either either way
2: it's just a reach like i feel like at a certain point like paid paid channels always become a resource management game because uh, you, you don't want to just let the you know the fire hose just run you don't want the well to run dry uh by just like casting such a wide net so i i mean and it's, it's definitely been neat um kind of getting back in touch with that side a bit you know learning learning uh, a bit around like setups and stuff again from tyler as well has been has been good uh to refresh my brain so that, that, that's been kind of nice uh
0: google's yeah. changed a lot though like I, she true. just has that note like yeah. lauren i don't like when i was started google ads every single time just google ads specifically i'll just say is like every time someone searched for something even if they just saw the ad and didn't click on it you would see that exact search in the back end of Google Ads and very easily you'd be able to identify what's working what's not working what you know maybe configurations of keywords or searches do I need to remove or do I want to add and in this case there was a day I think we had maybe say 25 clicks um, 17 of those I could not see the search term that drove so Google has just like <laughs> removed like highly valuable information knowing that they can do this without really suffering that many consequences. In fact, Google's advertising revenue went up. I don't know what it was last year, a ridiculous amount. And it's like, I've seen this happen over the years of like this constant gripe for marketers or agencies or companies managing spend of like, I cannot believe that Google is doing this. They're taking away, you know, this a type of, of keyword match that, um, was really powerful and they just removed it. And it's like, that's wild that they would do that. But then they, you know, but then you're like, I can't do anything else. I'm, I'm, this is one of the biggest acquisition channels. So now I need to just adjust a couple months. They won't change anything and then they'll make another crazy change. And then it's literally just this process over and over again, where they were removing control, removing access to information, but still it's so powerful that Mar- marketers and these advertisers have no other options in a way um so it is this really sort of this chokehold um that these you know these companies have you in and you know when i Hall you know, and i were pr- brainstorming it's like how do we quickly do some validation on what things can drive it's like we didn't really have that many other options uh uh to be honest so um that and Nihal, i'm not sure if you have any other thoughts on that
2: I mean, it, it would be a whole different conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would say the one thing that we've done nicely, and what brings in the, you know, the experience of, is that if you do have your analytics set up properly, you have conversion tracking set up properly. It is educating these systems. They actually have got. You know, pretty magnificently proficient uh, at optimizing their system to, uh, you know, identify signals that show that someone is, you know, worthwhile to, you know, go in that auction and put a bid and hopefully get a click on versus who is not. And, uh, you know, obviously there's challenges it's so weird because again, you're, you have these, you as an advertiser in a company, you're like, you, you want that data, you want that sophistication, you want that targeting ability, but then as a person, you're like, I can't believe that this is possible. And really it's pretty dark sometimes to think of, but there have been changes, macro changes in the market, Apple security, Android security, changes in cookies, all these things that are happening or coming right now, um, or coming soon that, Will continue to probably impact the quality of advertising, the quality of reporting, the success, the targeting abilities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, I'm really interested to see how businesses shift over the next few years as more and more of this this takes place.
1: Why do you think uh, Google made those changes? Is it more beneficial for Google? Does that mean like more people are spending, having to spend more on ads as opposed to just manufacturing uh, like keywords better, or like why would
2: they do that? I mean, I, I think that at the end of the day, as much as like you know big tech is a it has, it has this kind of villainous light on it. I, I do think something like Google, um where they are the source, they're essentially the singular source of truth, um, you know for better or for worse. So I think a lot of their changes are always made with the kind of end user in mind. Obviously, it does benefit them where if, they're able to better optimize their ads ad experience. For example, where someone clicks through and then converts, that also makes them a much more attractive advertising channel for like an advertiser, right? Versus just getting a because initial versions of their algorithm were obviously going to be much more broad net. Um, they'd send you a ton of leads, ton of traffic, but the amount of leads and traffic that were actually good were probably a lot. Uh, it was probably a lot lower than it is now. Um, And, you know, they have such large teams dedicated to refining these algorithms and refining how they digest all this information they're given uh, that that I think, yeah, that there's some uh, intent there to get more money from advertisers, but maybe not in a very like direct, like, hey, give us money to serve better ads, right? It's more like we've built the system to basically deliver optimal results. And we're going to make you like pay more for these optimal results, essentially.
0: And Google, Google loses if they can't attribute growth and successful advertising to themselves, right? So I actually think not necessarily optimizing toward—I wouldn't say it's the greater good, but you know, if you can't move, if if Google's optimization of their algorithms for advertising don't work and you spend a hundred dollars and you don't even have a signal that you're moving towards some sort of revenue growth or, or advertising on a profitable level, then people are going to stop using the platform and will try to figure out other opportunities. But in general, unfortunately, or maybe not, I don't know if it's unfortunately, but like Google knows more than you and they're better than you. And I I I when I first started Google, I would write every ad manually. And then I just started to let Google take control and pump in headlines and they would rotate over and over again until they found the the right combination in a way that no human could do unless they literally sat there 24-7. No, they couldn't do it. You couldn't achieve it. So the optimizations is there. And we're seeing the same thing happen with uh, you know, websites, right? Like Google is going to small businesses now who are you know primarily dependent on Google My Business and telling them hey just use our website builder basically because it's better than, than what you're building uh, elsewhere. We know how what people want page speed and load times and blah blah blah. And maybe that's not true, um, but you know and again a lot of companies are. having to take up that offer because to go the other route and optimize and do all this work is extensive it's expensive it's time consuming and it's hard and things change like uh so yeah it's interesting it's crazy stuff yeah
2: i I feel like that is the the big the bigger piece as well like i every every time like if, if you look at google's messaging too like around their advertising and um the kind of funnel they try to drive you down like uh as an end, like, if you don't sign up with a company email or whatever, a lot of it is geared towards, hey, we are your central source of truth, right? Talk to a Google account rep, right? Talk to our team, essentially, like, don't go to these agencies to do your stuff, like, we'll teach you how to do it yourself, essentially, right? Um, Which, once again, for better for, like, I'm sure for a lot of small business owners, um, you know, small, medium-sized businesses, who might not have the capability to pay someone else to do this work for them, it's it's definitely great to see, you know, to make it as simple as possible for them. Uh, but you know, for people that do enjoy doing it and make a living from it, it's, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's very fun. Also shifting you know, this GA4, and I'm seeing all the memes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone that works with a website in <laughs> the GA4 update, it's like nice.
0: I, uh, yeah, I am, uh, I am still pushing back against GA four. I'm still a universal analytics man. And I feel like it's one of those changes that's happening where it makes me feel old and out of, out of date, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that when the Google Ads reps get you on the phone, their push is basically maximize conversions and spend more money, which in a way is a valid uh, recommendation because it's like you're training data more quickly to optimize towards it again, especially if you have these sort of conversions and stuff uh, set up. So to get back to your original question, Lauren, not hundred percent sure searches that we're seeing are coming good. And, you know, we're doing a little bit of remarketing I would say on Instagram and Facebook right now. Um, and those are, um, you know, very hyper-targeted. Um, so we're not, I wouldn't say we're wasting money on, uh, on these ads. It's, it's all good stuff and it's good signals. And, you know, very quickly we weeded out maybe some things that hadn't thought of. And just as example, someone typed in like Chinese text analysis, we don't have Mandarin. We don't have, you know, Chinese languages in our system. So, that gave me a signal, oh, I need to remove every language that our system doesn't offer, filter that out for any of the searches. So moving forward, we don't optimize or pay for anything that, or someone types in free or someone types in maybe open source. There was all these things that you don't necessarily consider in advance that come through once you exclude them and your advertising gets tighter and tighter until you figure it out. So we move towards that that opportunity um, and getting there. But I think, you know, we need to look at other channels as well too, especially when you don't have a a ton of cash, this big war chest that you're just sitting on to, to splash around. It's like, what can I do with, you know, putting yourself in this box of limited resources or even no resources and still be successful. And again, is that direct outreach? Is that, um, you know, what other scenarios or opportunities are there? And it's a question I'm asking myself. And I guess, you know, as we're coming to the end of this, I'll ask, uh, you know, put this as sort of wrap this up as the last um, uh, talking thing is just like, um, you know we've been on this journey, I think, especially since the start of, end of last year, start of this year, which is to, I would say optimize or um, pull these levers that we think can drive growth. And I would say to date, um, we've actually seen that. I did that pitch deck last night and I had updated highest level of user signups, highest level of media uploaded ever in February, which is actually a shorter month. Um, so um, you know, I guess just as you guys reflect back on the last couple of weeks, again, like what, what do you find is working right now? What um, do you wanna to continue to lean into? Um, is there anything you're looking to want to test and experiment on, I guess, just anything around this sort of growth perspective, um, uh, as we continue to move forward and hopefully bring March to, a uh, another good end and some, some all-time highs.
2: Yeah, I, it's, it's definitely been really nice to see this growth and, you know, on, on all fronts. Um, and obviously, uh, when you're trying to grow as fast as possible, there's metrics you always wish grew faster and, you know. Did more things for you, but it, it is a process and a journey for us to get there. Um, in terms of growth, uh, I think the one thing that I am still wrapping my head around, and you know, uh, we've had a couple of roadblocks on that front, though. But it's also just how do we take, you know, all this technical stuff and technical implementations too that we've helped some of our customers with and turn it into something that is of general interest or is something that can be used by a larger percentage of the population um in a way that isn't that doesn't seem as intimidating or uh you know abstract to them so it, it's 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 almost like is our next growth engine or part of our growth engine, you know, adding in this uh, how-to element, but on a more technical end. So instead of, you know, talking about, let's say, top-level functionality that I feel like for the most part now, you know, things like um, how to use general transcription apps, for example. I feel like people are kind of past that point of knowledge so now it's more, you know, you brought up this topic around, let's say, analyzing your transcript. So let's say if that's the next step down, it's like, okay, how do you do more in-depth analysis on text data or language data, whatever it is. But then on top of that, it's how do you actually use this in a meaningful way? How do you integrate this into X type of business or Y type of business? And what does this implementation look like for you? Or what is something we can build for you, right? Um, Without much work from their end as well, so I feel like as part of let's say the content uh, piece as well, it's uh, how do we like how do we educate without just being uh, another voice in you know in the sea of general SEO as well? Because yeah, obviously SEO is important and uh, hitting getting all the target keywords is important, but how do we actually? Uh, Help people and impact their their work, um, which which I think is the something I'm I'm trying to like wrap my head around as well. um, Just in terms of how do we take all this good stuff we've built and good stuff that we've done for existing customers, um, and how do we get more people interested in doing that for themselves as well? I don't know if you were
0: referencing that specifically, but like literally one of the search terms that came in today was how to analyze a transcript of a conversation, you know, and it's like, those are questions that we, I believe, both conceptually and technically have actually figured out at least how to get, for a lot of people, 85% there, or at least deriving value pretty quickly. It's just, I think what you also talked about is like, How do you get to this, a larger audience? Like, is there a million people who care about this? And if I I believe there is, you know, obviously, um, but how, where are they? How do we get to them? What percentage of them care enough to check out the application to test it? And then how is that problem big enough that they would even uh, want to pay for it? You know what I mean? Like once you start to whittle that down, if it's a million people, how many people are actually left um, at the end there? And then, you know, as we were talking about today, what is the size of that pain or the, 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 the opportunities that that's unlocking? How much is that worth? Is that again, a hundred dollars a month? Is that a hundred dollars a year? Is that $10,000 a year? Like, you know, those are the things that we maybe still have some variables on and some gaps that we need to you know, figure out in our own um, business and ideal customer profiles to be more effective in that outreach, to be more effective in that growth lever. Because for us to just publish that page and leave it on our site, maybe we'll start to see some results in uh, a month and a half, three months, six months, but that's not going to be fast enough for the growth that we want to see.
2: To your point, right, it's, th- there've been times, like we've almost identified a pattern. I mean, we have identified a pattern of, you know, the types of customers that do come in, the types of users that come in where um, it basically goes, you know, find find our site, maybe hop into a chat, and then, you know, maybe a week later, they've subscribed to the platform and they're asking us a bunch of questions about setup, how to maximize their use of the platform. Um, So how how do we kind of take that inbound, I guess, uh, channel and create more of an outward presence around why these are useful things. Because I, I think I, I've, I've been getting inspired a bit by these, which is wild to think about it, but you know, like on, on TikTok, I, I don't have TikTok, but I've, I've seen that there is, because um, I'm a boomer apparently, <laughs> but there, there's, I was reading about this one uh, woman, for example, who uh, has created a like, seven figure business, just teaching Excel you know what I mean? Um, and I'm like, that's obviously Excel is a powerful tool. It's super useful. Uh, but you would have thought that let's say the market there is saturated, right? But yeah. clearly not because there is a, a market out there of people that want to learn things. So it's like, what can we, like, can we basically make our platform something that people want to learn, right? How to use and want to do cool things with, and w- what are those cool things we can help people help people do? So I like another thing I saw that was interesting yesterday is like uh, what's it no, Jasper Jasper. A. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They, I think. Yes. Yes. They rebrand right, right from Jarvis. Was, or, that was Jarvis to Jasper. Is that yeah, what it is? Yeah.
2: Yeah. You, you saw that. I, I don't know if you saw this, but they basically fed like, I mean, you know, cause they're a robot or whatever. So they like fed it a, uh, I guess a bunch of data and churned out their prediction for uh, the uh, March Madness, like the NCAA basketball. Mm, interesting. Game, right, which isn't necessarily related to the product they're selling, but I thought that was an interesting way of getting, you know, like taking pop culture, taking like normal things and sh- sh- demonstrating a way that people and people might find use from it. Obviously, I don't think there's much commercial intent around that, like I feel like that's quite, you know, may- maybe just a fun little uh, growth and awareness tool. But I'm I'm sure we could do similar things to actually generate true value for end users and education, right? I I feel like education of uh, how to use these platforms in a more meaningful way is maybe lacking in the space a little bit, right? Where people are, like, there's a lot of companies around transcription, a lot of companies around, you know, this conversational intelligence, whatever that might be, but uh, what? What is it that, so let's say sales is a market segment, but there's obviously a ton of competitors in that space. Is there another market segment that we have in you know in our pipeline where we're seeing something similar for what people are trying to do, right? And how do we make that maybe publicly available knowledge in, in an easy to digest way, but then obviously for the actual implementation and use case, they'd come to us, you know, and treat us as the experts in that situation to help them uh, solve that problem. Uh, so yeah just just some some things to think about there
0: and generally when you're you know trusted as an expert people just want to hand off and delegate like if the credibility's there if it's verified that you know what you're doing then it's a lot easier for people to just have the trust and say hey i'm just going to give you the money you know let you do it i i trust that you're going to take care of it and i think you know we we have moved There And some of the more deepening, you know, deep relationships with our customers, it's just like, they'll just throw problems at us that are related to this kind of stuff and say, Hey, I don't know anyone else who can really figure this out. Will you guys do it? And this also parallels my own journey of, you know, I didn't know how to do any of this at the start. I remember the first time trying to figure out how to transcribe something and then The problem that came from transcript was now I have, you know, 10,000 words. What can I learn from that? Like that iterative journey that a lot of people are going to. And even a couple of people last night, after I did that pitch, they came up and said, you know, I'm really interested in what you're doing because I'm using Otter for all my conversations, but I'm trying to do this next iteration that I think uh, this overwhelm that I feel. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to be um, these big paying customers or anything like that, but it's showing me that there is, there's validation of a problem. It is actually an important problem that people are trying to solve and they actually, they don't know how. Um, so um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, things to consider here it's just the again the sort of speed and, and we've talked about it before about these reports on what's going on in the world or i had found a little bit of success with um, some of those more like pop culture uh word cloud visualizations that had sort of imagery and stuff and people like those as long as you hit it at the right time and everything and i think there's a lot more that we can do and i guess it just all comes down to capacity the ability to execute and then the outcome uh the drives for for you and the business um, Lauren, any uh, last thoughts on on this? I guess.
1: Uh, yeah, just on the idea of uh, growth. Uh, I just want to ask. Um, we have seen some decent amount of growth in the last few months, and uh, just wondering, why do you think that growth actually took place to begin with? Is it repeatable, or um, do we actually even know why that growth uh, that growth occurred? And are we uh, are we kind of maybe what we're doing going against what caused that, or is it helping it out? Or just your ideas of you know, how that growth came about to, to begin with.
2: I
0: my, my theory right now is that people, again, a lot of these things have come, there was two steps that really took place. We lowered the transcription cost and we, then we built out these personalized plans. And I attribute a lot of it to those, which are in both cases, this transcription, we said, you know, basically made people feel that, their best interests were in mind. You know, the reasoning we put out for that was that we actually want you to have cheaper transcription costs, cheaper analysis costs. We want you to be able to use the system more, you know, uh, cost effectively, et cetera, et cetera. And what the personalized plan, the theory or specifically around that is it just makes people feel special. You know, mm-hmm. it makes them feel that they are in control of their destiny and what the, the, the configuration that they're looking for that is valuable. And I think that is something that is, not to be like understated and I wish we had thought of it before because I think we would actually be in a much different position right now because we really tried to push these standard plans on people and there was no need for us to be that rigid and like inflexible in especially even in earlier stages when we were trying to figure out like it just it didn't make any sense we just in my mind I think we had this sort of you know, perfect SaaS business that, you know, uh, and that's like not, that's a very small percentile of companies who are doing that. And a lot of that time comes out of maturity and understanding the plans and everything that works. And I don't think we had that true um, understanding yet. So Mm -hmm.
1: I think a lot of those subscriptions kind of came about because you kind of have this idea of what a SaaS company is. You look at all these popular SaaS companies, it's like, oh, this is the way they they lay out their subscriptions. This is what you have to do um, to really be successful in that space. But when you're kind of in a, in a startup, you really have to break the mold. You have to really try different things. And yeah, I agree that, yeah. Being very personable, being very, um, being very friendly and very hospitable, uh, goes a long way, especially in SaaS. but, uh, that's great for like signing up people for like specific subscriptions. But, um, when it actually comes to like, actually just getting people to the page to, Do you find that you can really be personable with uh, your marketing, or is the marketing more of just a net, as you had said?
0: I think we've seen companies, I'm trying to think clearly in my mind who they are, but uh, who have sort of, there's two things like personable, as in there's like personalizing, you know, and that's maybe again what we struggle with because we do have a couple different industries and use cases. But then there is more like the fun friendly brand um that you know is a little bit more just feels a little bit more um less stiff or corporate and i actually do think we em- embody that in in our communications um maybe not as much on our site um but generally i think i still think you know feedback we get on our site and brand is that it's it's nice it's clean you know it's i mean obviously we don't always think it's clean and not that great sometimes but like generally the white the green with some like, uh, you know, embedding of nature and some of the imagery and stuff and nice little graphics and illustrations. Like there is friendliness that is exuberated through some of our representation and our brand. And then I think that definitely transitions in once you start to interact with us on intercom or emails, uh, et cetera. I like to continue that. And I think that's actually what's been a big driver of our success in our personalized plans is like once you get in an email chain with, you know, even like myself, it's like, I'm a friendly person and I want to help, you know what I mean? And I think sometimes we do look at these SAS companies as like very like who is on the back end of this? Like, are they even real people? They don't help me really. Uh, Maybe they have some live support or chat, but I feel like I'm sometimes talking to a robot. Uh, And I think, you know, we do differentiate in our communication where again, at the end of these personalized plans, it's like, people are like, thank you so much for setting me up. Uh, And it's like, they just made a purchase. You know what I mean? That, that feels nice uh, when you see that. And we've had, you know, one person, you know, churn, lot this month and they, they, and they were like apologetic. You know what I mean? They were also just like, I wanted this to work out just because of the, you know, sort of, uh, uh, infrastructure of my business and how much I'm actually using it. It's not a perfect fit, but it was like, not just like F you, this sucks. It was like, actually this, you've actually have done an amazing job. You guys have treated me so well along this. And, you know, I, uh, you know, I hope that in the future, there's like I would much rather have that be an outcome of a churn than some of the other things that uh, probably companies uh, experience. So,
1: um,
2: yeah. Just as a final point about this personalization element, I think uh, there's always gonna be ways to continue personalizing and improving how we speak to our customers. But I also think just in terms of our product and company ideology, right? Like where uh, if if, if we truly say, let's say that our end goal is to help people, do whatever work they're doing um then obviously pricing shouldn't this like pricing is important making money is important but if we can present it in the way that okay here is what we can do for you while still you know running things and keeping things viable for us to keep growing as well i i think that's good messaging is the messaging that these personalized plans deliver where it's like obviously we have our standard pricing um which is what we uh you're free to a take on those. Um, but we're also willing to hear what you want and what you have to say, uh, and, you know, try to give you the best possible deal we can give you to help you out while still keeping our business growing and running as well, which, which I think is a, is a nice little message.
0: Um, yeah. And when you're doing a good job, customers want to see your business grow. And if you're helping and you're creating value, it's like, there's no, problem with that. And I, I also just, you know, think of my own experience of like, even right now, I'm looking at getting a couch for the house, Monica and I, and like went to the brick a couple of places, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, i got a recommendation from a friend who went to this guy who basically customized and built a couch for them. And it's like that level of customization, just a little bit of a relationship that, you know, the, the field that you are getting, you are in control, or you are, you know, have the ability to choose what you want and get it. That is a lot of, that's, that's, that's pretty powerful in today's world. So, um, you know, I think we'll continue to, to drive that, um, um, you know, figure out how to make it even better. And, you know, again, because the system is sort of configurable, um, you know, make sure that people are getting the value um, that they're looking for. Cause like as, as said, in the end, it's just a human to human experience and you're hoping that you're actually helping people solve the problems that they have in their lives.
1: Yeah. You're probably a lot more likely to buy something if you're, customizing it you take like 10 minutes to look at like a pre-built couch or you take like a month to build out a couch and then you decide oh should i buy this couch or should i buy the other couch it's like exactly time
0: yep yeah you make a time like people when they submit even the personalized form they're actually making a time investment in it like they're making an investment in us and then we're obviously returning that investment to them and i think any time that you can get that investment the likelihood of something working is greater. Um so um, you know, these are things that you don't really know at the time and you only do through testing. Um and sometimes you test things maybe a little too late. Um but it's never too late. Uh you just got to keep uh keep going and growing and learning. And uh you know I've definitely learned a lot through through this. So um anyhow, the background looks great. The house is coming together. Uh yeah really a really lot oh, nice. might want to get yeah. a paint job as well. Oh don't say that. Oh you like the white <laughs> oh yeah
1: for sure. Oh, okay. He just just says, saying, that, there's a lot of ahead. there's a lot of white that i'm not sure if you want to paint or anything or you go with the white.
2: he's good <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah
2: uh, yeah i think we're, we're just gonna keep it because there's like there's some like you know like pattern on the ground so okay. yeah, yeah well i that's got the weight it is that yeah. the weight set there too yeah that, that's totally my, my, that's way. full. That's,
0: that's full. Yeah. Yeah. I like the speakers too. No, that's a good background, sir. I, uh, I am a little bland here right now. Lauren's obviously in the forest okay. as always. Uh, but, uh, um, appreciate this. This was, uh, another hour obviously started a little bit late today, but I guess I didn't need to say that no one who listened to this would know that. Um, but, uh, nice to, nice to see you guys. Um, and, uh, for anyone who's listening to this, who's following this journey, uh, we're appreciative of you. Um, we learn from you. We learn from going through this process, these conversations, I always come out of it with some insight going the weekend and some things to think about. So thank you very much.
1: Take care. Sure.